Today's teaching is titled Walking in Love, Learning How to Live Selfless Lives from Godly Examples. Walking in Love. This has been a drum I've been beating lately. For those in the college group, it's something I've been talking about lately as we're going through the book of Philippians, and that's what I want to look at today. It's a book of love. It's a book of joy. It's a book of selflessness. And in this day and age today, how many of us need to be more selfless by God's strength, by God's grace, need to be more loving? With all the political unrest and COVID unrest and job uncertainties, even in my own life and with my family, my wife is pregnant. Our landlord came to us several months ago now, about a month and a half. And he said they're selling the house, a place where we lived for five years. And he said, you got 60 days to move out. And it's just, it's been hectic. It's been crazy. And, but what has been a blessing lately is I got to visit Idaho several months ago. A couple weeks after that, I went to Mexico, and then we visited Texas, and it wasn't really planned that we'd visit all three. My wife got to go to Idaho and uh, to Texas with me, but it was such a blessing because we visited Idaho, and several families took us out to dinner, and we fellowshiped, and they paid for our meal, and we came home feeling blessed and encouraged that we have brothers and sisters in Idaho that love us and that we're willing to pay for our meal. It was a blessing. Then I went to Mexico, and Jonathan Ball and Stacy, they cared for us, and they opened up their house to us, and, and we got down there late. I don't know if it was one or two in the morning, and they were cleaning the house still, and man, I was just brought to tears just to see their love, to see their love for the Lord, to see them blessing me and the brothers that went down there, and Jonathan driving us around in that 15-passenger van all weekend. So we went, went around sharing the gospel and giving out food and um, just blessing those who have nothing down there. But to see the love of Stacy and Jonathan and their family and that example of love and selflessness uh, was so encouraging. And then after that, a couple weeks later, I went to Texas. This was just two weeks ago or so. And James and Erica, we got there at two or three in the morning. We landed in Houston and they live in San Antonio, so we drove three hours, and it might have been three in the morning, and there was James and Erica and their whole family waiting to greet us, the back patio, had our beds all ready, all this food, and then James drove us around all weekend in another 15-passenger van as we spread the gospel in San Antonio. And I just came home from all these trips, blessed, encouraged, and saying, Lord, help me to be selfless. Help me to love like my brothers and sisters in Idaho and in Mexico and in Texas showed their love for us and their love towards you, God. And I said, Lord, help me to do the same. And I pray that that would be all of our prayers today, that we would grow in our love for one another and our love for God and living in selflessness. And that's what the book of Philippians is all about. It's a book of joy, yes, Around 20 times we see the word joy or rejoice in the book of Philippians. And why is Paul rejoicing? One of the first reasons we see that Paul is rejoicing is what he says in verse 12, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's in prison. He's in Rome. And he says the praetorium guard is coming to faith in Christ. The gospel message is spreading. And even though I'm in chains, even though I'm in these harsh, harsh conditions, even though I'd probably rather be free, I'm rejoicing because the gospel is going out and people are being saved. He says in verses 20 through 25, According to my earnest expectation and hope, I shall not be put to shame in anything. But with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean more fruitful labor for me. For I do not know which to choose. I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. 
convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So the young adults and I and the college group, whatever we want to call them, the 18 to 30-year-olds, we've been going through the book of Philippians for several months now on and off. And I wanted to bring everyone else into this study with us, all of you out there that are watching today. Just look into the life of the Apostle Paul and his love for Christ and his love for the church. And I've asked the question many times as I'm teaching, and I said, if there is a button right there in front of you, and if you push that button, you'll go straight into the presence of the Lord. You'll go to heaven right now. Would you push that button? As you're sitting on your couch right now or driving in your car or wherever you may be, If there was a button in front of you to go straight to heaven, would you push that button? And I think if you ask the Apostle Paul that question, he probably couldn't get to that button quick enough. He's saying, man, I want to be with Christ. It's very much better. It's so much better to be in heaven, but I'm torn. He might be a little hesitant to push that button. Why? Because he's convinced in his mind that the Philippians and the other churches need him for their progress and their joy and their faith. And he knows that he can be used by God, by God's grace to touch their lives with the gospel, with the truth. And so he's torn and he's saying, if I'm going to remain on, it's going to be for you guys. I'm not hesitant to push that button. This is what Paul's saying. I'm not hesitant to push that button because of worldly pleasures, because of immoralities, because of drunkenness, because of the things of this world that I want to hold on to. No, I'm not pushing that button because I want to pour into others' lives. I want to be a blessing to others. I want to live a selfless life for Jesus. And that's what I'm going to do. If I'm going to remain on in the flesh, it's going to be exalting Christ with my body. So whether I live or whether I die, it's going to be for Christ. The verse I want to look at today and what I'm doing right now is I just want to give a quick background on the book of Philippians and an overview, is from Philippians 3.17, and it says, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. Join in following my example. And what we've seen already is his example is to live for Christ no matter what he's doing, to glorify Christ, to serve others, to bless others, to use whatever gifts he has to spread the gospel. And that should be our mentality as well. We see several examples that Paul gives in the book of Philippians. Obviously, he's one of the examples of a life to to be modeled after. When we turn over to chapter 2, we're given the best example that anyone could ever look to. That's Jesus Christ. We see in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, It says that Jesus, who although he existed in the very form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, I'm going to keep reading. Verse 9. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. And of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're going to bow our knee one way or another. I tell people this when I'm sharing the gospel. Bow your knee today to Christ because every knee will bow. Every atheist, every agnostic, every Buddhist, every Hindu, every Muslim, every Jew, every Christian, we're all going to bow the knee. We should bow the knee today to Jesus Christ. The ultimate example here in the book of Philippians is Jesus Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, Although for, from eternity past, Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, he left that glorious throne and he came down, born in a stinking manger. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a bondservant in total submission to his father. And even to go beyond that, Paul says, he died on a cross. 
So he left heaven. He was humbled in his birth. He was humbled in his life, being a bondservant. And then he was humiliated and humbled in his death. And Paul's saying, look to Jesus. You want an example of selflessness? You want an example of walking in love? Love like that. Amazing. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 20. We get another example of selflessness. Timothy. Paul says in verse 20, I have no one else of a kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. Timothy was genuinely concerned with the welfare of the Philippians. He was genuinely concerned. And because of that, Paul says, he has a kindred spirit with me. Because Philippians, you know how much I love you. He's saying, Timothy loves you as well. He's not like a Demas who left the ministry for his love for the present world. No, Timothy is serving me like a child serves his father. He's willing to do whatever it takes to minister to you guys. We jump down to verse 25, chapter 2. We get yet another example of godliness, of selflessness, of love, and his name's Epaphroditus. And Paul says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Why is Epaphroditus distressed? Because the Philippians are worried that he is sick. And so now he's worried about them because they're worried about him being sick. Talk about love. Verse 27, for indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on us also. Let I, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And I love this guy, Epaphroditus. He's a brother and a fellow worker. Paul describes five things. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister to my needs. Paul's saying, man, this, this guy is a soldier for Christ. He is suffering battle scars, so to speak. He's sick to the point of death. He, to the point of death, he is risking his life to, to be sent from you Philippians to me to provide for my needs. And now that he's regaining his strength, Paul says, I'm going to send him back to you. He's going to continue on in the ministry. Amazing. Amazing that when Epaphroditus is sick and going through this huge trial, his thoughts are still on the Philippian church and their well-being. And I know many of us, when we get sick, man, it's hard to think of others. Last December, I got really sick. I thought I had COVID. I never got tested. It was before the whole COVID thing really hit and right around February, March, I was in bed for probably a day and a half it was hard just to roll over. My wife was bringing me in kombuchas and all sorts of medicine, and she was pretty much spoiling me, kind of like Epaphroditus was just willing to do anything for the Philippians. My wife was just coming in, giving me soup, and I kind of felt like a baby at times there. But, man, it was, it was hard. I, but my thoughts were all about me. I'm like, Lord, this is, I am in pain right now. And to imagine thinking about others like Epaphroditus in the midst of a sickness and being worried about them because they're worried about me. Amazing. Amazing love. We turn to chapter 3, and Paul lays out his credentials in chapter 3. He starts off in verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the, sing, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. When we're reminded of things in the Christian faith, we shouldn't tune our ears out. We should be reminded that it's a safeguard 
for us. And so Paul's reminding the Philippian church here that they need to watch out. He goes on to say, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In this book of Philippians, it's not like the book to the Corinthians or to some of Paul's other letters where there's rebuke after rebuke. There really isn't any rebukes in this letter whatsoever. There's really no corrections in this book. The Philippians seem to be doing most things right in the ministry. But yet Paul wants to reiterate several points, and that's that they don't get caught up in the flesh. They don't get caught up in pride, that they stay humble, that they stay selfless. And so Paul is guarding them from these dogs, from these evil workers, from this false circumcision. And he says, just to let you know, Philippians, these false teachers are coming in and they're telling you probably that you need to be circumcised to be saved, just like those other Judaizers are coming into the church of Galatia at around the same time, doing the same things, trying to yoke them back up to the old covenant, the old testament, the old, the law of Moses and saying you must keep all this, these laws to be saved. And they were boasting in the flesh. And Paul says, you know what? If anyone can boast in the flesh... I far more. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, if these guys think they can boast, if they think there's something special, he goes, my past life, Philippians, It was pretty special. I had some credentials. I was pretty zealous. I was advancing beyond my countrymen, the Pharisees. Yet, Philippians, now that I have Christ, all of that is rubbish. I don't look to that anymore. I look to Jesus Christ. And in verses 7 through 14, Paul mentions Christ over and over and over Look at verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. There was no question as to who and what was the most important thing in the Apostle Paul's life. Jesus Christ. Verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. Where does Paul's righteousness come from? He says, it's not from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Where does our righteousness come? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone, him alone who knew no sin, was made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's all through faith. I love verse 10, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, to be conformed unto his death. It's all about Christ, in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have become perfect, But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by who? Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize for the upward call of who? Of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was consumed with Jesus Christ. Jesus is who he lived for. And that's why he says in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So when we get down to verse 17 and Paul says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. What kind of example did Paul leave? An example of being consumed and in love with Jesus Christ. If we're going to follow Paul's example, if we're going to follow Timothy, if we're going to follow Epaphroditus, we need to be men and women of God who are consumed with Jesus Christ, who are feeding upon his word daily, are reading the gospels daily and looking to Jesus Christ 
and wanting to love and to live and to serve and to be selfless just like him. And if our focus is not on him and our focus is on things of this world and all of our struggles and COVID and all the political unrest and all these different things and wearing a mask and no mask and vaccines and no vaccines and things that are all important and things that we need to research. But if that is where our main focus is at, we're going to get our eyes off of Christ and we're going to drift away from walking in love, from walking in selflessness, from loving Christ the way we should, from loving our neighbor the way we should, and going beyond that, from loving our enemies the way we should, from loving those that don't love us the way we love them. And so Paul was all about Jesus Christ. In Mexico, I had the privilege of teaching several Sundays ago, and I looked at Jesus' life in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, in the Last Supper, and leading up to his betrayal and his death on the cross. And in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, we see a lot into the life of Jesus and we see his prayer life and the high priestly prayer in John 17. And John 13 through 17 is all about Christ serving. In John 13, he washes the disciples' feet. You get to John 17 and his high priestly prayer is all about, most of it is about his disciples and that they would be united in the faith, that they would stay strong in the Lord, that they would be unified in the faith. And then Jesus, after that, he goes to the cross. And who is he talking to when he's on the cross? He talks to the apostle John and he talks to Mary. And he says, John, this is your mother. And Mary, this is your son. And it says from that time forward, John took Mary into his home. He cared for her. What's the point? The point is that Jesus, all the way up to his death, was thinking about others, was loving others, was caring for others. And this was the biggest trial of his life, bearing the sins of the world. And yet he's looking to others. And that's the mindset that we need to have. And that's the mindset that the Apostle Paul had. When he says in verse 14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And right before that, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. You see, sin is crouching at the door. Sin was crouching at the door, I'm sure, in Timothy's life, in Epaphroditus' life, in Paul's life. And what does sin do? Sin keeps us in a state of selfishness. It's, I want to do this, I want to do that. And that's the mantra of our day, right? Do what you want, right? The satanic motto, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Do what you want, live for yourself. If it feels good, do it. Go off your emotions. Follow your heart. That's what we hear today. That's the mantra of our day. And that's the exact opposite of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to follow Christ. Did Jesus Christ feel like washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13? Did he feel like continuing to minister to them and to pray for them in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was going through his most difficult trial? He probably didn't feel like it, I don't think Epaphroditus felt always like serving the church and going to serve Paul even though he was risking his life to death. I don't think Timothy always felt like serving the Lord and serving others. I don't think Paul always enjoyed being in prison and serving God and loving the churches even though some of them didn't love him, yet they put their feelings aside. They took every thought captive in obedience to Christ And that's what love does, is it overlooks and it puts any entanglement, any sin, any emotion, any thought, and it takes it captive. And it says, Christ, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love my family. I'm going to love my children. I'm going to love my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I'm going to love the unlovable, whether at work, at school, wherever it is, because that's what I'm called to do as a Christian. So Lord, help us to do that. Now, we see this metaphor many times in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul when he says to walk. The metaphor of the Christian life. Walking in love, as I've titled this message. And Paul uses this metaphor several other ways in the New Testament. 
And I want to give you six other ways, or six ways total, not bring up all the 33 ways that Paul uses this metaphor. But let me show you several verses. Romans 6, 4. Paul says, Therefore we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So number one, we're to walk in newness of life. Number two, we're to walk not according to the flesh. That's stated in Romans 8.4 and Romans 8.13. Romans 8.4, it says, So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. We as Christians don't walk according to the flesh. What is the flesh? Galatians 5 gives us that long list of what it means to walk into the flesh. Paul's saying we do not walk according to immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, but we walk according to the Spirit. Romans 8.13, let us walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. When you turn on the news, if you turn on the sitcoms, if you turn on the television, if you go surfing on the internet, how are people in this world walking? How are they living their lives? Is it pure lives led by the Spirit walking in love, or is it all these things I just listed, the immoralities of this world? So number two, we're not to walk according to the flesh. If we're going to walk in love, we're going to walk in the newness of life. We're not going to walk in our past life. Number three, we're not going to walk according to the pattern of this world. Ephesians 4.17. So I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk and the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God. Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We're not to walk according to the course of this world. And that will come with a fight. Because this world is constantly trying to cast us into its mold. And I believe that's why Paul says, I have fought the good fight at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Why does Paul say he's fought the good fight? I believe it's a fight to walk in love. It's a fight to keep the faith. It's a fight to walk in joy. It's a fight to not live for ourselves, to not live in the flesh. It's a daily battle. We have to crucify our flesh daily. Fourth point, Paul says, is walk in the Spirit. Galatians five sixteen. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That should be our goal daily, is to walk in step with the Spirit, as he also says in Galatians 5.25. How do we do that? Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything excellent or anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. If we want to walk in the Spirit, we need to dwell on on things above. We need to dwell on Christ. We need to dwell on heaven and where we'll be with him forever. And that's why it says in Colossians, set your minds on things above and not on things of this world. If we're going to walk in the spirit, we need to be living in prayer. We need to be living in God's word. We need to be meditating on it day and night. It's interesting, a couple nights ago I had a dream. Pastor Joe was in my dream And I don't remember all of it, but he looked at me and he said, Nick, keep meditating on the scriptures. That's all he said in my dream. Keep meditating on the scriptures. And I woke up and I said, wow, praise God. That's that's awesome. I need to keep doing that. If I'm going to walk in the spirit, I need to be feeding upon God's 
word. What does the psalmist say? I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Sin is crouching at the door. We must master it. The only way we're going to master the sin in our life is by feeding on God's word daily, by getting on our knees daily and crying out to him for help. Number five, Paul says, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right now, Satan is doing his best to divide the church, to divide us all up, to keep us enclosed and to keep our sins in darkness, in, in hiding. That's what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to feel like we're going through our sin alone, whatever it may be. And what I want to encourage you today is if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, we need to reach out to others for help. We need to get that sin out in the open. We need to be accountable to others. And with this COVID environment, what it's doing for many of us is we're, we're at home a lot. We're behind closed doors a lot. We have a lot of time on our hands. And Satan's using, I believe, the internet, pornography, idle minds to keep Christians on the sidelines, so to speak. And we need to do whatever we can to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to reach out to our brothers and sisters, to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to be wise in this age of how we can continue, as Paul says here in chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians, to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We need to be diligent to continue doing this no matter what we're going through. And then, of course, the sixth thing is that Paul says we are to walk in love. Remember, I didn't go through all 33 of the examples of where Paul uses this word walk. But Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. When we live lives of walking in love, we look to the gospel. We look to what Jesus Christ did for us, that self-sacrificial love. And if we're going to walk in love with our families, if husbands, if we're going to love our wives the way we should, we're going to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We're going to love our children with that Christ-like love. We're going to love our church with the Christ-like love. We're going to love our neighbors and even our enemies with that same kind of love. But I want to get back to that point that I made earlier, and that is about the feelings. What if I don't feel like loving my wife? What if I don't feel like loving my kids? What if I don't feel like loving others in the church? What if I don't feel like loving my neighbor? What if I don't feel like loving my coworker? Recently at work, I got into a pretty heated discussion with another coworker, and it got pretty, pretty uh, hostile. And I didn't intend for it to. And I was speaking the truth and love the best I could. But man, I went home after work the other day, and I thought, Lord, I need to have love for this person. We had a strong disagreement, and I said some things that he took maybe the wrong way, and he said some things that I took the wrong way. And I was saying, Lord, if there's any any way that I possibly sinned in my conversation, please forgive me. And I said the same to him the next day. And I said, would you please forgive me if I offended you in any way? It wasn't my intention. There was no glaring sin that I was aware of. I was, it was just a discussion about ministry. But during the night when I went home, I had to pray for this individual because I began to get some anger in my heart towards him. And I remembered these verses that I'm talking to you guys and I'm sharing with you guys right now about how I'm to walk in love. And even though I didn't feel like it, I said, I need to pray for this individual all throughout the night until God takes any 
bitterness or anger or malice or anything that was in my heart towards this individual, I said, Lord, I need to love him like you love him. I need to pray for him. I need to continue to bless him. And so we need to put those feelings aside. You know, I was thinking like a firefighter. When they're running into a burning building, maybe it's three in the morning and they get the bell that there's in the they're driving to a call for a house that's on fire. Perhaps they don't feel like going in, right? Perhaps they're tired. Maybe they had a long day, a lot of calls, and they don't feel like going in to rescue a person that's in this house. Does that stop them from running into the house? Does that stop them from putting out the fire? No, they do it because that's their calling. That's what they've sworn to do, to run into that house. How about a police officer? When there's a hostile situation, do they run into it? What if they don't feel like it? They've sworn to do that. And so they put themselves in hostile situations to protect others, to serve others, to be selfless, to do these acts of love. What about a lifeguard when somebody is drowning? Maybe at Zuma Beach and they're stuck in a rip current. I'm sure there's times where the lifeguards go, oh man, another person out there. How many times have we told them not to swim when there's a rip current? Yet they go yet they serve, yet they're selfless. And many of these people aren't even Christians, right? And yet they still do these selfless acts. And I thought, how much more as God's children do we need to love? Do we need to serve? Do we need to be selfless? And it's been convicting in my heart as well and in my family because I don't wake up every morning thinking of all the ways to serve my family. And it's something that I need to grow in. If I'm working all day and I work in Oxnard and I work a 10-hour day and I drive home, I have to say, Lord, help me to serve my wife right now. Help me to love her. Help me to have the energy to wrestle with my son when I open that door and he says, Daddy, I want to wrestle because I don't feel like it. I want to put my feet up on the, the table and I want to relax, but I know that I need to love them. And that requires me to put my feelings, my emotions, my tiredness aside and say, I need to serve and love them the same way Jesus did when he was in that garden and he was sweating drops of blood and he did not, I'm sure, feel like going to the cross for our sins. Yet he did it anyways. He fought the temptation on his knees in prayer and that's where we need to go as well when we're struggling with love in our hearts We need to be crying out to God for help. How important was love to the Apostle Paul? Listen to some of these verses. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let let all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Earnestly pursue love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Colossians 3, 14. And over all these virtues put on love, which is the bond of perfect unity. Ephesians 3.17 That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Ephesians 2, or 4, Ephesians 4, 2 and 15 With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Romans 13.10 by the way, these are all letters from the Apostle Paul, right? Romans thirteen ten. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfillment to the law. What amazes me is Paul's love even for the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen, he says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Here they were not loving him. Here they were not thinking he was a true apostle. Here they were living sinful lives and Paul says, I'm going to continue to spend and be expended for your souls. That's the mentality we need to have. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 11, because I do not, he says, why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. He wanted to defend himself against this Corinthian church to show them that he loved them. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 When we're talking about love, let's go to that chapter. How important was love to the Apostle Paul? 
He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. I mean, he's giving a pretty good list of things. Giving his, all his possessions away, having the gift of prophecy, having all knowledge, having all faith, speaking with the tongues of men and of angels. This is a pretty good list. And he's saying, I can have all of those things. But if this one thing is missing, it's for nothing. If love is missing from the equation, all those things don't matter. And many of us can have knowledge and many of us can memorize scripture and many of us can do great things with apologetics and these are all important things, but we must be reminded that if we don't have love, we are nothing. And then he goes on to define love, right? Love is patient, love is kind. It's not jealous, it does not brag, it's not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. That's one I was thinking about and meditating on the other night when I left work. That love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Do you think people in the church are going to hurt you at times? Do you think people at work might hurt you at times? Do you think maybe a parent or a loved one in your family might hurt you at times? I think we can all say yes, but love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Those that hurt us in different ways, we continue to pray for them. We continue to love them. We continue to bless them. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, verse 6, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Then you jump down to verse 13. But now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. How important was love to the Apostle Paul? He says the greatest of these things is love. Man, it's so important that we love. And even in the next chapter, the next verse, chapter 14, he goes on to say, pursue love. The greatest of these things is love. Pursue love. He's writing to a church that was lacking in love, 1 Corinthians. And yet he says, to pursue love, to focus on love, Corinthians. Why is this message so important to me? Why is this message, I believe, so important for us as the church today? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9 through 12, that our love can grow cold. He said to the disciples, he looked at them and said, they will deliver you to tribulation. That includes us as well. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mis mislead many. Why, he says? Because lawlessness is increased, most people, or the love of many, will grow cold. Wow, that's the only time in the New Testament that I saw that Greek word for growing cold being used. Talks about spiritual energy being blighted or chilled by a malign or poisonous wind. Why or how could our love in the church grow cold? I believe the answer is in verse 12 of chapter 24 of Matthew. He says, because lawlessness is increased. Lawlessness is increasing in our day. Child trafficking, pornography, Sexual immorality is rampant all over our country, all over the world. The internet at a click of a button can download things for us that God hates, that Christ hates, that we should hate. And when we get entangled and ensnared by these things, by the immoralities of this world, by covetousness, by all these different sins that this world that we live in is taking a part in, once it seeps its way into the church, our love can grow cold. I believe that's what was happening in the church of Corinth that Paul was writing to. Their love was growing cold. They had no love, very little love, because sin was rampant in their church. And may sin not be rampant in our lives. I love the quote from Tertullian. 
He lived from 160 to 225, the early church father. Tertullian said, look, they say, see how they love one another. People were looking at the early Christians in the first several hundred years after Christ, even during the two plagues in the second and third, I believe, century. I gave a teaching on a Wednesday night several months ago when I looked at how Christians acted during those plagues in the early church and how people were dropping all around them from these serious diseases and the Christians were bandaging their wounds. They were starting hospitals and people all around it, even the word got to the Roman emperor that the Christians were loving each other and that they were even loving their enemies and loving those who were sick. And so Tertullian records that for us of look how they love one another. How does Jesus say that all men will know that we are his disciples? John chapter 13, 35, if you have love for one another. That's going to be the indicator that people know that we are his disciples. And I believe that Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, they left us that example as well. You know what interesting verse is in 2 Peter? I'm going to read it for you here real quick. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Let me know if this is how you feel in the world that we're living. It's how I feel at times. It's speaking of Lot. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, If God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. It says then in verse 9, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So when it says in verse 7 and 8 that Lot was oppressed, righteous Lot was oppressed, and it says in verse 8 he was tormented. Oppressed, it means to be exhausted by suffering, and his soul was tormenting, meaning he was going through an earnest trial. Why? Because there was sin all around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sin crouching at the door, and his heart was heavy. His heart was oppressed because it was everywhere. And I believe that's the culture we're living in today. Lawlessness is increasing. It's all around us. And Christ is calling us to live pure and holy lives, filled with the Spirit, filled with love for one another. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its desires. How was Paul so effective in his ministry? How was Timothy and Epaphroditus single-mindedly focused on the gospel and sharing the good news and loving others and risking their lives, I believe that they were putting to death their sin in their lives. And if we're going to live in love as we should, we need to put to death the sins in our lives. Now what truly amazed me as I went through the 13 epistles, the 13, or the 13 letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, was how he closes out his letters. How do we close out letters today when we love someone? Someone in our family, a wife, a spouse, uh, our children. We say, love such and such, right? Love Nick. Love Leah. How does Paul end his letters? I wanted to know if Paul ended his letters saying, love the Apostle Paul. Many of Paul's letters he closes with this phrase, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Or love be with you in Jesus. Right? Because what is God's grace? It's his favor. It's his blessing upon our lives. When you look at Philippians and Galatians and Ephesians and First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy, Paul ends by saying, grace be with you. Grace be with you all. What I found interesting is how Paul ends his letter in 1 Corinthians. The church that loved him the least, the church that said his appearance is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. They even doubted whether he was a true apostle of Jesus Christ. How does Paul end his letter to the church in Corinthians? In 1 Corinthians 16.24, Paul says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. 
I love that. My love be with you all, Corinthians. The only letter that Paul ends that way by saying my love is to the church that he felt no love from. The church that gave him the most problems. The church that he could have had the most bitterness and anger towards. He wants them to know that he loves them. That's how we need to love our enemies. That's the example for us to follow. So when Paul says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us, the example that Paul left for us was an example of walking in love, even to the point of loving our enemies. So in closing, may we risk our lives in service to others as Epaphroditus did, as Paul did, as Timothy did. May we fix our eyes completely on Jesus, no matter what the unrest of this world brings us, no matter the political unrest, the unrest with sickness, the, whatever it may be, let us fix our eyes on Christ and love like him in this day. And let's get on our knees and seek God more and more as we see his day approaching, his return approaching. Amen, let me pray. Father God, we thank you. We glorify you, we honor you, we lift you high, and you are exalted. Jesus, you are on your throne right now. You are ruling and reigning. You said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And you say that we should go into all the world, making disciples of all men, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always until the end of the age. What a great promise it is, Jesus, that you're with us. You're with us to the end. No matter what we're going through, no matter what trial, no matter what sin is entangling us, you're with us. You want us to put it behind us, as Paul said, forgetting the things that lie behind and reaching forward to the things that lie ahead. I pray, Lord, that we would take your word seriously. I pray that we would live holy and pure lives for you. I pray that you would knit your heart, our hearts together in love, that you would knit our hearts, your church, Blessed Hope Chapel, together in love, that we would put others before ourselves, that we would consider others as more important than ourselves. Lord, help us to do this in the days ahead. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with joy. Fill us with peace. Help us to look to you no matter what we're going through. We love you. We praise you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.